Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. Our guest today is Dr. Madeline Pape, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Sociology and Science and Human Culture program at Northwestern University. In this episode, Madeline introduces us to the work of Anne Fausto Sterling and discusses how Fausto Sterling demands us to move beyond a strictly binary model of sex and to shift our thinking away from a static understanding of being. Madeline also reflects on how reading Fausto Sterling's work was particularly impactful due to her own background as an elite athlete who competed for Australia at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing and the 2009 World Championships in track and field in Berlin. Hi, Madeline. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Carl. I'm really happy to be here. We're here today to talk about Anne Fausto Sterling. Could you give us a short introduction to who she is or perhaps more importantly, what she's known for? Yeah, sure. Okay, so Anne Foster Sterling is a developmental biologist, actually. She's, she's not a sociologist. Uh, she has studied the role of genes um, in embryo development, um, but she has also, uh, since the 1980s, been really engaged in debates about the role of science in reproducing um, gender and racial hierarchies, and she's really become a preeminent theorist in feminist science studies, but also gender studies, because she's really led the way in terms of showing how we can challenge scientific claims about sex and sex difference in particular, um, and showing how claims about the idea that sex is ever a straightforward binary are not only politically fraught, but also scientifically flawed. Um, and in fact, scientists and doctors have to do a great deal of work to ensure that they align their data and their patients with binary notions of, of sex and gender. That's really what Foster Sterling is known for. You know, part of this work is looking at the complexity of intersex variation. So this idea that sex is a spectrum, that it's not a binary. But I think what's important to know about Foster Sterling's work is that she's not only saying that sex becomes complex when we look in between the binary categories, she's also saying that the binary categories themselves, so our ideas about what is a male body and what is a female body, they too actually conceal a great deal of complexity in how sex actually develops and, and changes dynamically in our bodies. Considering the way you describe her work, it makes a lot of sense that sociologists would be interested in her ideas. What I'm wondering is, has she reached a point where she's read widely in the discipline? So is this the type of name you might stumble upon in Intro to Sociology? Or if you go to the American Sociological Association's meeting, would you expect people to know her work or be familiar with her ideas? I, w I wouldn't expect them to know Foster Sterling's work. I mean, she's certainly really well known in feminist science studies and science and technology studies circles as well as gender studies circles. But there hasn't, I think part of the issue is that sociology is, is still figuring out what, what its relationship is to the body and to biological, the biological sciences in particular and, and, and how sociology can intervene in those spaces. So, so and there's certainly been, uh, I guess, points of view put forward by sociologists like Victoria Pitts-Taylor and Lisa Wade as well, calling on sociologists to do more to engage with biological claims about the body. Okay. How about in your areas of specialty? So I'm thinking sport, gender, the body, science and culture. Do you see your work there? Yeah. And in those spaces, I would say that Foster Sterling's work is widely read and 
it's kind of, I would say, part of actually this sort of new emerging field that I find really exciting called feminist biology, which is a space where people who are trained in the biological sciences and who have labs and who are doing that kind of lab-based scientific work are bringing in the insights from gender studies and feminist perspectives on science in order to change the ways that they're doing their work. Which I think is incredibly exciting because for years and years we've had this buzzword in academia of interdisciplinary research, but we, we haven't really seen it. And then at the same time, you have this real divide, as you're talking about, in gender studies between what happens in biology and the social sciences or humanities. Yeah, totally. And I mean, there's absolutely a place for social scientific engagement with uh, with sciences, with the you know, hard, hard, so-called hard sciences and, and sociological critiques of the biological sciences. But it's really cool to also see this other, this other emerging space. I mean, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, for example, which is where I did my PhD, they have a, a postdoctoral fellowship for feminist biology and they also have recently um, been looking to hire someone who does feminist biology who'll be housed under the gender studies program but will have their own lab space and be able to do their own their own work so that's and that's um, not restricted to university of wisconsin madison we're seeing that in other universities too i'm sure we'll return to that gap a little bit later but i'm wondering if we could take a step back and think about your initial encounter with these ideas so when did you first hear about Fausto Sterling's work or when was the first time that you actually read some of this stuff? I first encountered Anne Fausto Sterling's work as part of a feminist theory course when I was a graduate student. I was a second year graduate student, so this is 2013, when I took a feminist theory course through the political science department. And the very first book that we read was this book called Sex in the Body. Uh, written in 2000 by Anne Foster Sterling. And it's a book about the complexity of sex and the, both the historical and the contemporary ways that scientists as well as medical practitioners are, are writing their, their ideological commitments about sex or their ideological assumptions about sex as binary onto the body. But what was, I guess, important about that book for me and why it really struck a chord with, with me was that it, it opened with a, a story about the regulation of sex in international sport. So this had this opened with this story about a particular athlete, Mary Maria Jose Patino, who was a Spanish hurdler who'd been banned from competing during the 1980s because she quote unquote failed a chromosome test. So in other words, her chromosomes weren't neatly XX, which meant that she wasn't eligible to compete as a female athlete. So there's a whole background there in terms of the history of sex testing in Olympic sports that I'll just sort of put to one side for the moment. But I guess the key piece for me was that I had been an elite athlete in the sport of track and field. I competed at the Olympic Games in 2008 and 2000, in 2009 I competed against Casta Semenya, so an athlete who is now sort of widely associated with the debates and controversies surrounding the practices of sex testing in sport. So to open this book by Anne Foster Sterling and discover that there was a history of these practices in sport, which I hadn't been aware of, and that there was this feminist perspective critiquing and pushing back against these practices, which I had also never encountered, was really actually, I would say, not just a career-changing moment for me, but also a life-changing moment. So as you're describing, you were completely immersed in this institution 
that relied on on the acceptance of a binary model. During this time, did you hear any of the critiques, or was this simply this simply was the way the way it is? Yeah, I didn't encounter any discussion, and I mean, I think it it might be different now. So I was competing in at you know my when I was at my best, it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and there'd been I think in the, the years leading up to that a lot of silence around these practices, and we'd sort of forgotten as a sport, we'd forgotten the history and the legacy of those practices from earlier decades, and it was really only Casta Semenya's presence on that global stage in Berlin in for the World Championships in 2009 and the controversy that erupted around her right to compete and the fight that she then has been engaging in for over a decade now that has prompted the sporting world to start to ask some different questions so for me I, I hadn't encountered alternative points of view or even debate it was very much a sort of single-minded, I guess, way of thinking about this this issue at that time, namely that sex should be simple, we should have neat male and female categories, and we should be able to, it should be right to exclude certain women from competing if they have slightly different traits to, to other women, which is a view I don't agree with anymore. It really shows how important and profound the case of Castor Semenya was, because really, we didn't have those discussions in sport or, or even outside of sport, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I don't know that Semenya would have wanted to have this kind of a legacy. Like she's really had to put up with unimaginable scrutiny. And I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine what she has, what she has gone through over the past decade. But in the process of going through that journey, she's also taken us as a sport or track and field as a sport and I would say, and not just sport, but people outside of sport on a journey where we've sort of been made to confront this complexity about sex, but also, and also think through not just the scientific complexities, but the ethical complexities and what the sort of shifting boundaries of sex and gender mean for how we think about inclusion and fairness in the context of, of sport and other spaces. Returning once again to Anne Fausto Sterling's work, I'm interested in this question of moving across the disciplines. So your training is not in biology. Fausto Sterling is writing and building an argument from biological background. What is it like to pick up one of these works and really engage with it? I think actually the the most difficult part was hearing hearing her out rather than I mean, yes, the sexing the body, for example, does go into you know some of the scientific complexities of say hormones for example and there, there are I guess there is material in there that is coming from her perspective as a as a developmental biologist so it's language that isn't necessarily accessible to me but I would say that that was less challenging to grapple with than the ways that she was confronting my long-held beliefs about the stability of sex and the stability of the the binary, so binary, you know, female, male categories. And I think, but I think what made it, what I really like about this Sex in the Body book and which I think, and and what I think has been a really valuable contribution from Fosso Sterling to these conversations is the theoretical model that she develops in the book. So she develops this idea of dynamic systems theory. And it's essentially this idea that our bodies are always in dynamic relationship 
to our social context. It's not necessarily linear. Our body isn't always developing in the same direction or in the same ways at any point in time, but rather our bodies are, are constantly having to shift and change in response to uh, the, the environment that we're moving through. And these start, these this responsive or this um, dynamic um, relationship starts to sort of accumulate in our bodies in certain ways over time, which is why, for example, we might see, you know, certain differences start to take on the, the look of being solid and the look of being firm. And the way that she explained this dynamic systems theory concept, I found, I actually found very compelling because as an athlete, it actually seemed to make sense for me in terms of the kinds of inputs I'd been putting into my body over the years, which had allowed me to uh, sort of accumulate certain kinds of athletic skills and abilities. And it actually fitted with my own understanding of my body from being, from being an athlete. I could see how the athlete in particular would have this intimate knowledge of the body as always being a process, right? Something that's shaped, something that's molded, something that's trained. And yet as fans, we only see that that stable ending. We only catch that one moment of peak performance. Yeah. And I mean, you see like over the course of an athlete's career, the sort of, um, and, and I mean, I, and I mostly know track and field and the running events in, in track and field, but in those events, you can sort of see the sort of ebbs and flows, the effects of injuries, but also you, we can think over a longer time scale scale and think about the impact, for example, of growing up at altitude, for instance, or maybe growing up in a country that had a highly developed sports system or, you know, having early exposure to, say, uh, sensible coaching and, and committed coaching and how those kinds of interventions can shape the development of our bodies. So, yeah, I think on a lot, on a lot of levels we can see how dynamic systems theory can help us to understand why our body is what it is at certain moments in time. How did Anne Fausto Sterling's work affect your own research? So I'm thinking of something like this focus on a dynamic process or her questioning the binary of sex. Um, and, and you said that you encountered this work at that second, in that second year of grad school, which is such a formative moment where you're deciding your own research agenda. So how did that play out? I had gone to grad school thinking I was going to be studying environmental sustainability and began to get curious about gender, but in, then encountered Foster Sterling's work and felt immediately that this is a space that I want to be involved in. I think because it just, it fits so well with my own connection to my body that had, I had acquired as an athlete. And I really liked the, I liked the idea that you could start a challenge science on its own terms to really engage with the scientific method and with the assumptions and decisions and and, and questions that are that are driving scientific research especially scientific research on sex in order to then you know reveal the the politics that are always embedded scientific work that that people do and including you know the work that sociologists do so I guess that that sort of that body of feminist science studies work, but not just Foster Sterling's work, but that in, entire body of work had, was really, really impactful for me. Now, I'm not trained as a biologist, so I needed to figure out what my contribution was going to be to those discussions. And I ended up, what I've focused on is actually processes of rulemaking and policymaking that involve certain ideas about biological sex. So I've, you know, focused on critiquing the politics of expertise and the 
the uh, ideological politics that are embedded in the way that sports governing bodies approach the regulation of eligibility in women's women's sport. I've also been looking at biomedical research in the US and how policies for inclusion especially in preclinical research, rely on and, and promote a certain idea about what biological sex is assumed to be and how it's expected to sort of emerge in preclinical research. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean about expertise or, or rather the politics of expertise? I find that idea so fascinating and important. So expertise isn't something that we objectively have, but rather it's something that we acquire in relationship to dominant institutions and the kinds of knowledge claims that, that dominant institutions are willing to recognise and hold up and so on. And I started to think about that because I had been involved in an appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport that had been brought by an Indian athlete, Judy Chand, who is a sprinter, a 100-metre runner. She was really the first athlete to stand up and push back against the more recent regulations that are being put in place for for women's sport and which focus especially on women with naturally high testosterone. So Judy Chand, who whose testosterone exceeded the limit that had been set by sports governing bodies, appealed this at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. She was somewhat successful in that the Court of Arbitration for Sport decided to suspend the existing rules for a period of two years, but those rules ultimately got brought back in. So what I was interested in was in understanding how that the Court of Arbitration for Sport differently valued the, the claims about biological sex that it was being presented with, such that it was they, they more readily accepted claims about sex being binary, claims about testosterone being the you know, key determinant of both sex and athletic ability, rather than engaging more seriously and openly with the scientific claims that they were also seeing from Judy Chan's team about the fact that sex is far more complex than a single biological parameter. Athletic ability is far more complex than a single biological parameter, and we can't actually scientifically make a case for relying on this single trait in order to say who can and can't compete as a female athlete. Earlier, we talked about that gap between the biological sciences and the humanities or social sciences. And what I'm wondering here is, as you engaged with Anne Fausto Sterling, but also were conducting your own research, did you find particular theorists not from biology that worked really well with Anne Fausto Sterling, or, or perhaps even from biology, but that helped you make those connections between those type of sciences and the work that you were doing? Recently in my work, I've been thinking a lot about how sex uh, as an ontological entity, as a thing that exists in the world, actually takes on many different forms. And it isn't sort of this uh, sort of final version of sex that trumps everything else once and for all. And what I mean by that is I'm influenced by this uh, a science and technology studies scholar called Anne-Marie Moll, who talks about the body multiple. And in the body multiple, that's the name of, of her book, Moll looks at atherosclerosis, so this disease and disease, and she's, she's looking at it in a hospital context and seeing how each practitioner that comes to atherosclerosis with their own paradigms, with their own tools, with their own ways of thinking about what that disease is, they each end up actually enacting a different version 
of the disease. So atherosclerosis is both showing in a MRI in a certain way, but clinically presenting in another way. And it's not necessarily the same thing in each of these enactments. And yet somehow in the hospital, these multiple versions of atherosclerosis nevertheless succeed in hanging together to enable these uh, practitioners in the hospital to do their work to treat atherosclerosis as a disease. And scholars have more recently, feminist scholars have started to think about what that approach would mean for the way that we think about sex. And so if we look at the different ways that people enact sex, whether they're a preclinical researcher working with animals, whether they're a researcher who's looking at sex in cell lines, whether they're dealing with people, gendered and sexed people in the clinic, or whether they're a governing body who has certain ideas about sex, each time those people are enacting sex differently, which means that there isn't actually one final version of, of sex. And when you think about it, what we mean by sex is actually sometimes a lot of different things. So this idea of multiplicity or ontological multiplicity, this idea that what we take to be a single entity is actually multiple things all at once, I have found very productive with thinking about biological sex because it's essentially, I guess, a, a an idea encompasses many different kinds of reality, which I think opens the way for challenging binary and biological understandings of, of sex. The next question I usually only ask to people who have been in the field for an incredibly long time, more advanced scholars, um, but I'm interested here in how your relationship to Anne Fausto Sterling's work has changed over the years. And the reason I'm so fascinated in your case is because as you've discussed, as you've documented, you went from someone who was competing at the highest level of sport where you were relying on this binary model, and then you went into someone doing research on that very same topic, or, or, or at least uh, related topics. So do you have any thoughts about how that relationship has developed over the years? Yeah, so what this question makes me think of is a question I put to Anne Foster Sterling some years ago, and it comes down to the sort of... So we, we know that in track and field at the elite level, on average, there is a 10 to 13% performance difference between male and female athletes. Now, that difference has changed over time, especially as more women have had the opportunity to pursue sport at the elite, elite level. But, you know, some people think, of course, that it's stable and that it's going to stay that way forever. And I'm not convinced that it will. So, so I asked Anne Foster Sterling about this gap, this 10 to 13% gap, and what she thinks could ultimately be how we explain it i guess was my question like at what point do we allow do we allow biology to be playing some role in this this unquestionable performance gap that we're currently seeing or, or do we try or should we try to explain it from like a social perspective like how you know once when we take dynamic systems theory and, and think about it in the context of sports categories where does it leave us basically and foster sterling was of the view that you know it's 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 a hypothetical question but who's to say that we wouldn't eventually see that gap disappear if social practices changed sufficiently enough that our bodies were developing differently and and sex differences got smaller and smaller or performance gap differences got smaller and smaller but then more recently and I think this is how I want to think about it now. I heard Giordana Grossi talking about this exact topic. Grossi is a psychologist, and I asked her the same question. And she said, what we should do is never say more than what we actually know and can prove, like with our research. So 
let's say we said we have this 10 to 13 percent gap between women and men if we can't prove that that gap is due to biology and is going to not be changing and will forever you know be this way if we can't prove that then we shouldn't say it so we should only say as much as we actually know about the about the situation and similarly we shouldn't say that that 10 to 13 percent gap is solely or is ultimately due to social differences if we're not really able to do that research to to prove that claim so i found that helpful i think because rossi is encouraging us to take dynamic systems theory and to apply it but to treat it as opening up an empirical or, or, an, or a research agenda rather than seeing it as a way to sort of explain the universe so that's the way that i'm thinking about that now like okay what questions might we ask now now that we have this dynamic systems theory that we could that we could be applying in our own work the next question that i have is admittedly a bit of a selfish one so i am currently teaching sport and society and when i teach sport and society i have the students write a proposal where after reading a series of uh, articles and chapters on this topic they decide whether they want to hold on to this separate but equal model in sport where based on the binary you either compete in women's track or men's track women's soccer or men's soccer softball or baseball right so do they want to hold on to that or do they simply want to get rid of that divide and open up sport and it's interesting because what I find every semester is that it's the athletes who end up being the most resistant to change. And in particular, I have a lot of women athletes in the class, gymnasts, uh, people could be in track of field, soccer players, volleyball players. And they're the ones who, who hold on to that divide the most and say it would be ridiculous to get rid of. And so I'm wondering, I mean, I guess this isn't a question, but I'm curious what, we, what you would say to them, what kind of advice you would give them or what you would tell them to think about when they're deciding what they want to argue or what proposal they want to put forth about about sport in general yeah i mean i think those are totally legitimate concerns and and i think that's i mean what i see as part of the problem is that when we have these debates about how we should categorize if sex is so complex should we bother categorizing it at all and and should we just do away with competition categories in sport that are based on these fraught uh, notions of sex difference? I think those those debates are all very well, but they overlook the long struggle that women athletes have had to engage in in order to get the right to compete. We have had to fight for women, women's sport to exist at all, and it's a fight that's ongoing. I mean, there's still pervasive gender inequality in in sport i mean even in sports like track and field there are really i think important gender dynamics that see male athletes performances valued over women athletes and of course across other sports we see huge discrepancies in in pay as well as the just vast i mean the the numbers when you look at leadership and coaching are just alarming you know like they just why is that so intractable like why are women why is sports still not you know gender equal when we've been fighting this hard and so because of that because of that legacy and because of i think the importance of that that history and and that ongoing struggle i would see it to be problematic to do away with gender categories and and in fact i think that the the sex and gender minorities that are currently finding, finding it difficult to fit within this binary schema 
aren't necessarily asking for those for that binary to be abandoned. Casta Semenya identifies as a woman. Judy Chan identifies as a woman. They want to compete as women. They're not asking for the categories to be abandoned. They're not asking for a, a third category, which is what the some sports governing bodies have started to talk about. That's just as problematic. We should instead, for the time being, and I think you know it doesn't need to be set in stone forever, but for this current moment, for this current social moment, I think it's totally legitimate to see if to see what happens if we make membership in the sort of binary schema, the binary categories for sports competition based on identity rather than trying to come up with a scientific justification for who belongs in which category. Let's try that and see what happens. You know, the fact that we haven't tried it means that we're just or we're talking about some people are talking about this out of positions of fear and speculation and certainly not out of a position of compassion and understanding. So why don't we try broadening the conditions for membership uh, or the criteria for membership See and see what happens with that. And I would expect actually that that could be part of the process of actually changing the ways that people think about about gender and, and its complexities and the complexities of, of sex as well. All right. So this is my final question, and it's often my favorite answer to listen to. So imagine you are standing in front of a room of undergraduate students, grad students, professors in the field of sociology, um, maybe a general public as well, why would you tell them that they should read Anne Fausto Sterling? Why should they pick up this work coming from the biological sciences that has, has transcended the discipline and moved into gender studies and the science and culture? Why would you tell them they should pick up this work and read it? To answer that, I'm going to talk about what I've done in the, the classroom, which I think has been really useful for students. So... Anne Foster Sterling in her more recent work has been looking at and trying to measure the, the micro interactions between mothers. She's focused on mothers in this research, but mothers and their young babies. So I think between like zero and six months old. And the babies are, I think, classified within the binary, so they're either female. And she's looking at how mothers interact differently with the baby depending on the sex of the baby. So, for example, things like a mother, she's finding things like mothers will support a baby to sit upright for longer if the baby is a girl versus taking the hands away and, and letting that baby learn to sit up by itself if it's a boy. Things like if uh, the baby is crying and it's a boy, mothers intervening sooner and, and sort of discouraging that kind of discouraging that kind of behavior compared with if it's if it's a baby girl. And another example I, I really like mothers encouraging the baby to retain eye contact if it's a girl for to a greater extent than if it's a boy. So girls learning to sort of look at who's talking to them and give them their full attention and so on. So all these little ways that you can start to break down and measure how our gendered interactions in our, in our upbringing end up accumulating over the life course and resulting in what appear to be you know, different men and women being in some ways very different from one another. But actually there's been this social process that has contributed to that. So when you break it down like that, and, you, and Foster Sterling has a great video that sort of maps out what she means by dynamic systems theory, students really enjoy, like really find it stimulating to think about, wow, yeah, we can actually apply this 
in our own lived experiences and, and start to identify all these tiny little micro interactions that end up adding up to a lot of difference, you know, over, over a life course. So that's the, what I found to be what I found to be powerful in the classroom in terms of helping students to understand, okay, so if there's difference, how do we think about it? And how can we how can we start to unpack that and challenge it? All right, that is a perfect place to end the podcast. Thank you again for taking the time to talk. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed being being asked all these these questions and having the chance to share my share my experiences and, and thinking at the moment. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.